We're in a series called The Followers. The followers are those who are following Jesus Christ. They lived in the era of um, uh, when Jesus lived, and it's not just the disciples, the twelve, but we're looking at other individuals. We looked at the lepers last week and uh, the opportunity to be one of gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done. There are the nine that did not come back. They're all healed, but only one really understood who Christ was and was in submission to Him. Today we want to look at another follower, and that follower is the woman Mary Magdalene. Uh, Jesus had some tremendous women that were part of His uh, cohort. They were there to support Him. She financially supported what Jesus did, and along with a lot of other means. Just to clear out some of the debris that is sometimes thrown in here, Jesus and Mary Magdalene never did get married. They never did have a child together. And so I know that that's a lingering question you probably came to church wondering about, but uh, that simply never happened. There are no facts to support that whatsoever. But what God did in Mary's life is what God wants to do in all of our lives. And here's the setup for us. Something about Mary Magdalene, you see her in uh, maybe four different sections, but there are three that we want to focus on. And what I notice about Mary Magdalene is this. The more I read her through and thought, how, how do you put together her life? You see her initially when she is healed of seven demons. The next time you see her, you see her at the cross where Jesus is dying. And then the last time you see her, you see her at the what we call the garden tomb, at the place of the burial of Jesus Christ. And she is the one who sees the resurrected Jesus. She sees him first and she tells the disciples that she has seen the Lord. And in those three portraits of Mary's life, I want to propose to us who are wanting to think about something this morning, I want to propose to us that her story is sort of our story in some ways. And that those three portraits are aspects of what we go through or what anyone goes through who really wants to have their faith growing. And I pray that we have a growing faith. I quoted in my email this last week this uh, interesting quote that comes from Herbert Spencer, who was a philosopher that came out of the 1800s who believed in evolution and everything liberal. But one thing he said that caught my attention was this. A living thing is distinguished from a dead thing by the multiplicity of changes within it at any given moment. Does that ring true? A dead thing ceases to change except for decay. But a living thing, our body is constantly changing. We are constantly, Lord willing, creating new cells. We're constantly developing in ways that we need to develop. And that means that we're alive. Physically, that's true. Now, here is the warning. Spiritually, I'm not always convinced everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is actually changing, growing. You know, physically, we, we want to have Botox so that we can stop the appearance of the aging process. And I fear that sometimes we're trying to, or inadvertently, we're receiving spiritual Botox and we still have the faith of an infant and we don't have the faith of maturity. I want us to be growing. I read this last week about a little girl. Her name is Gabby or Gabrielle. And she's nine years old and she's got this disease and this disease is that she's not aging. 
She's nine years old, but she's got the body and the skin of an infant baby. And we say there's something wrong with that, and there is. Well, I say there's also something wrong with someone who nine years, 19 years, 59 years is walking and following Jesus, but still has the faith of an infant believer. There's something wrong with that as well. And so what I want us to examine this morning is to be challenged. I challenge in my own life. I want to challenge us in our lives that we are a growing believer with a multiplicity of changes ever taking place to show that we are aging in our faith, aging in a healthy dynamic, aging in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what we have this morning are three portraits of Mary to display the aging process and to embrace the aging process. And so we're going to look at, first of all, Mary and the discovery time. She's discovering Jesus, and it's a good thing. And then we see her at the cross in a sort of this dedication time when she's realizing what it really means to be dedicated to Jesus Christ. And in the last portrait, we're going to see her at the garden tomb. And this is the time of dependency where she really reaches what we think is a mature following of Jesus Christ. And you'll watch this change that occurs in her life. It should be happening in our lives. If you're here today because you want to grow in your faith, I pray that these are indicators of your faith and my faith as well. You have an outline that's going to help you follow along as to where we go because a lot of little sub-points that are there. I know you're not going to remember them all, but someday, maybe Lord willing, the Spirit of God would put upon your heart to go back and sort of reflect on it for your own personal spiritual growth as well. But I want to read in Luke chapter 8 where we first are introduced to Mary Magdalene. And I put on the back side a little bit of information. Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is not her last name. When you get to heaven, don't call her Miss Magdalene. She comes from Magdala, which is up in the Galilean area, the northern part of Israel. And so, so therefore, she's become identified by her city location. But she is simply Mary. There are a bunch of Marys. Mary was obviously, way back in, uh, when Jesus was born, Mary was a very popular name, and moms and dads were saying, what should we call our daughter? Let's call her Mary. And so there's all these Marys everywhere, and every time you yell Mary somewhere in Jerusalem, you know, half the women turn around and look. So, I hadn't planned to say any of that, but I said it anyways. <laughs> Luke chapter 8, these first three verses, we learn about Mary. Soon afterwards, after the things that are just taking place in this woman, that has come here and uh, had this uh, sins forgiven. Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, which is astounding, seven demons. We don't understand it, but that's what he says. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. And I call this the discovery era. We don't have any more background about Mary Magdalene. We don't know who her parents are, and we don't have any kind of a sense about what those seven demons were. But here are some aspects about the discovery time that people will go through. And this is a good period of time. We want to help introduce people to Jesus as a good 
honoring, godly man, God that deserves our allegiance. We want that. And that's where Mary is at. I don't know if Mary was born again, committed to Jesus Christ, on her way to heaven when the seven demons come out. We don't know that. All we know is that she was healed. And here are some of the things that happens in this so-called, what I now call, a discovery time. Discovery of that faith. It's a time of discovery, and this is what happens. It's a time to discover many good things that Jesus does. And He does do a lot of good things. And we need to convince people of that. By our good deeds, we display Jesus' good deeds. So we need to have people enter into a discovery time. I'll illustrate that in just a moment. And in the discovery period, if I want to grow from discovery to dedication, something has to change. And that is this. I need to gain additional knowledge on what it means to follow Jesus. The discovery time is a good time, but I am fearful that some people just are stuck in that period of just thinking Jesus is going to do good things. Jesus is going to do good things. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, good things will come to me. And if you're stuck there, your faith is like an infant, and it needs to blossom and grow. It needs to deepen. needs to widen. For example, here are some of the things that happens in the discovery period. I am aware that my hopeless spiritual condition is something that I can't do anything about, and that's what she has. I need something more than myself. I can't do this on my own. I'm so frustrated with my life, I can't get beyond, if it was Mary's case, seven demons. I put on the backside some of the things that demons will do. Demons will cause blindness. Demons will call, cause deafness. Demons will call epilepsy. Demons will cause a, a breakdown of all relationships. What those seven demons were doing in Mary's life, we don't know. But it may have been that she had all kinds of illnesses of epilepsy and blindness and deafness and uh, corrosion of relationship with her own parents and other women and men as well. We don't know that Mary Magdalene had a sexually immoral relationship with men. That is never said. Sometimes it's portrayed that way, but we don't know that. There's no evidence of that. All we know is that she had seven demons. When you have seven demons, you know you're hopeless. And for those who are hopeless and they're looking for hope, they want someone who can help set them free from that. That's the discovery time. You begin to experience the healing power of Jesus. been healed as these evil spirits. I'm seeing good things that Jesus is doing. Thirdly, I'm drawn to the mission of, of what Jesus is practicing, what He's preaching. He, he goes around proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Mary Magdalene is listening to that. She likes the sound of that. She likes the idea that a kingdom is going to be put into place. And frankly, she thinks Jesus would be a great king for this kingdom. She's sick and tired of the Romans and their cruel persecution of those who are Jewish, and the concept that we can be set free and have a freedom under a man like Jesus, who goes around healing people of seven demons, raises people like Lazarus from the dead, that's a good thing. I want that, she says. She looks at the message of the kingdom being preached, and she's on board. And anybody would have been in those days under Roman cruel reign of the persecution of the Jewish followers of Judaism. And then I began to share in that. I I like so much of what I see. I'd like to help out. Where can I fit in, Jesus? I'd like to do some good things because I see believers doing good things. I want to be 
on board with that. She's contributing to the support. Now we see that today. Let me illustrate a couple of things. There's a study that was done, and maybe you've heard about it. I know I'd heard about it once before, but I want to reiterate it, and as well as another one as well, specifically for us in the time in which we live. But, you know, I was with uh, a police officer just the other night and writing with him, and he's got a friend that he was telling me about who was a Muslim, and he was saying, how can I help reach this Muslim for Jesus Christ? What are those things I should be doing? It's interesting. In that vein, there was a study done from 1991 to 2007 by Fuller Theological Seminary's School of Intercultural Studies. They studied 50 ethnic groups from 30 different countries over that period of time, and that's a big population. And they ascertained why and what were the most common reasons why Muslims converted to follow Jesus Christ. Here are some of them. Number one, because Christians practiced what they preached. When you and I do what Jesus tells us to do, what does Jesus tell us to do? Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. The more you and I do that, the more a Muslim wants to follow Jesus. Secondly, Christians appeared to have loving marriages in which women were treated as equals. That's a good thing. Not always in the evangelical church have even in that setting women been treated as equals. Not even sometimes on staff. But that's one of the things that they say is attractive because they're putting on these burqas and doing crazy things that uh, the men tell them to do. Thirdly, Christian-to-Christian violence was less prominent than Muslim-to-Muslim violence. Four, the prayers of Christians had healed the disabled and delivered others from demonic powers. Five, The Koran had produced different disillusionment because it accentuates God's punishment more than his love and his use of violence to impose Islamic laws. Six, God had used visions and dreams to influence the converts' decisions. And we hear more and more through open doors and other areas that Jesus is appearing to Muslims to convert them to follow him. And that's a powerful influence. Seven, Muslims can never be certain of their forgiveness and salvation as Christians can. Eight, they read the Bible and the converts have been convicted of its truth and converts finally are attracted to God's unconditional love. When you and I practice the kingdom message of Jesus, those around us, be the Muslims or atheists, they're more likely to say, you know what, I'd like to learn more about Jesus. The discovery time is to understand the good things that Jesus does, that they are drawn to that. Mary was saved because he healed her, because his message was positive, because his message was inviting, because his message caused her to say, I can support that. When we live that message, others are more likely to say Jesus is a good thing too. Here's a second example of the discovery period. We have emergency needs funds that you often hear us talk about every first Sunday of the month. Many of you are very generous in helping us with that, and we certainly are thankful for that. Here's a letter I received from someone who was helped through the emergency needs fund. She is one that I would say has discovering Jesus. Part of what she wrote, she says, I left that day after we had helped her with her car, feeling important, like I really mattered, and that to a bunch of strangers. That's you and me. We're a bunch of strangers to her. 
I couldn't help but feel that Jesus was right there jumping up and down, cheering you on, saying, Yes, this is what my kingdom is all about. This was definitely a service that reached all people. I have felt stuck and neutral regarding my spiritual life, and this was just the boost I needed to light the fire. I'm excited to give and to spend more time with the Lord. Thank you for being part of that process. Please continue to listen to the Lord. And he will continue to do great things through all of you. That's the discovery period. You and I, where we work, where we go to school, in our neighborhood, when you and I do good for others that is sacrificial, that is loving and gracious and kind, when it goes beyond anything, they were, why did you do that? Where did that come from? That's amazing that you would do that. I didn't know people would do those things to help others out like that. Then you begin to understand that there are people out there that are feeling insignificant, unimportant, and suddenly we treat them as people of great value and worth, and we invest in them by sacrificial giving, by kingdom living, by loving them the way Jesus loves them, regardless of the kinds of sins that they commit. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter how many sins they commit, whether it's sexual immorality, thievery or robbery, I don't care. When we treat people in a way that God treats people with love and grace, when we invite them into the kingdom lifestyle of Christ, they begin to discover that Jesus is a good thing. It's invitational. And Mary was invited, not because she came and fell on her face and repented of her sins to Jesus. There's no indication of that. Jesus is traveling from city to city. He sees Mary. Seven demons, I see them. I release you from them. And she's healed. Was she converted? Don't know. Doesn't say. But she's attracted to somebody who does things like that. You and I, we're the body of Jesus. When we do good things to people regardless of their response and our expectation of the response, when you and I do that, we're inviting people to respond and discover Jesus. We need to be people who help those, like Mary, enter into the time of discovery that Jesus is a good thing. That's the discovery period. That's the time where invitation is occurring and lives are beginning to be changed. But then we move on. Then we grow. Then we grow to understand that there is more than just simply being healing and having my finances taken care of because somebody's contributing to the work of the saints and realizing that it's all good kingdom message and it's very positive. We love that. We want to hang on to that. And some churches, that's all they preach. If you're part of the kingdom, live like a king. And you expect to drive around in a very expensive car. Sometimes there are churches, that's as far as their message goes. The discovery time. But those of us who want to grow in our faith need to understand there's another time. There's a time that follows that time. And that time is this. It's what I call, and I'm just using these are almost uh, arbitrary words, but, but a dedication time. And that dedication is reflected as you follow Mary through this period of time. It's a time where I begin to learn that following Jesus, there is an emotional, spiritual, and relational cost to my life that it is not going to always be this positive kingdom where I'm being healed every time I get sick, where I have every need always being met. And to grow, I must be willing, as I put on the screen, the outline, 
I must be willing to turn from my past sins and accept the cost of following Jesus. I've got to say, I buy in. I understand that because I now am becoming more than just a person who discovers good, but I'm becoming a person who dedicates to Jesus, that it's going to cost me to do that. I put on the screen, on the outline, these passages of John 19, Matthew 27, Luke 23. They're all parallel passages. And those are the passages as you read them, and we're going to read them right now, that are all about the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is dying. And Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, has they are standing there looking up and watching the blood, and maybe some of the blood of Jesus actually splattered on their clothes. And they're beginning to understand that if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, there's a price to be paid. Christians in North Korea are discovering and being dedicated to this cost. Many of us in America, we can live in the discovery time because we have so much freedom and we never have to even worry about the dedication time or the cost of relationships because we have so much. We're so blessed. But it's part of the journey. It's part of the seasoning of my faith. And notice some of these things that Mary begins to talk to us about here as she sees, as we see her life. She is there at the cross literally. And here I'm just going to go metaphorically speaking. She's at the cross standing literally watching Jesus die, watch them take the body off the cross, watch them carry the dead body of Jesus to a grave. She literally followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they literally carried the body to the tomb. You see that on the account of Scripture. She literally is with him in the sacrifice and in the death. When you and I identify with Jesus, his death and his burial changes start to take place. Now, here's the Romans 6 identification of this. In Romans 6, we read this about the following of Mary. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Stop right there. The word baptism to the person reading this is not what we think it is. The word baptism is, is a word that means I identify with someone. Baptizo means to immerse something into a uh, colorful liquid that stains or dyes that white cloth into something, say, purple or blue or red. And so when you read baptism... I'm thinking about the last time if I am a, a uh, housemaker in those days, I'm thinking the last time I wanted to have a, an outfit that is purple as opposed to white, I had to dye a baptizo that in this dye so that it could have the color that I choose to have. And so when they read, I'm going to be baptized in Jesus, you mean I'm going to, I'm going to literally be dyeing myself into a new color? We think baptism is some, we're going to do it like next week up there, some sanitized, heated tank. So it's really as comfortable as we can make it for people to be baptized in. And it's going to be really clean. You can actually drink the water. In those days, being baptized is literally changing the color, the look, 
the identity of an individual. If I stick my hand into a blue-dyed liquid, my hand's going to come out blue. So when I am identifying with Jesus, I am reaching the point... Excuse me for just a moment. This will not come out of my preaching time. There we go. Sorry. So distracting to me and probably to you as well, saying, can you get that thing right? When I identify with Jesus Christ, I am saying I am one with you in what you go through. So that's what he's saying. I've identified, I've been died with into Jesus Christ, into his death. What does that mean? We'll talk about that one. Therefore, we have, also, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that or here is the thing. When I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, when I say I am died, D-Y-E-D, into that, when that is my identity, then this happens. Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. When I see Mary Magdalene standing at that cross, she's physically identifying with that cross. She then physically identifies with the dead body of Jesus by following the dead body of Jesus as Joseph of Arimathea took him to his grave that had never been used before. And then she's at the garden tomb when Jesus comes to life and she identifies with this new life. She physically does what we should do spiritually. Identify with his death, baptized into it, died with it. Die, D-I-D, so I-D-Y-E-D in his death and burial and resurrection. And therefore that means that I begin to move from my sins and I grow in my righteousness. And believers that are still living in the sins of before Christ, I say, why? Because if I am dedicated to Jesus, I'm changing. There's a multiplicity of spiritual changes that should be taking place in those who are growing. Because I've identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the dedication period is where I'm saying, you know what? I can't do that anymore. I won't, eth- I won't do that for ethical reasons. I won't do it for moral reasons. I won't do it for, for spiritual reasons. I am changing. So how I treat my spouse, how I treat my children, how I treat my employees, how I treat my neighbors... All of those are changing. And if I've got a stinking, rotten, critical attitude towards someone and it's coming out in anger and resentment and bitterness, and if you've identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's going to change. If you're being abusive and, and a mean-spirited employer who is unfair and unjust and all the employees sort of hate you, but you think the bottom line of the dollar amount is what really counts, so you crack the whip even harder then you're not identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because that's not kingdom talk. That's your talk. That's not Jesus. 
This love and grace of Christ that has been displayed because we want people to discover Jesus so they can be dedicated to Jesus because this guy's worthy of my following him. Because lives are being changed from sin to righteousness. And the display of love and grace is higher. And the spirit of resentment and bitterness and criticism is less. That is what it means to identify with Jesus. I begin to realize then also that following Jesus will impact my relationships, causing very unfair or unjust treatment. Because I follow Jesus, I'm at a, living at a different standard of life. The robbers who had just been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. She's watching this. Mary is watching the robbers who deserve to die insult the only innocent man on the cross of the, li- of the history of the world. But she's recognizing, wow, that's part of what it means to identify with Jesus. I could be insulted unfairly, unjustly. I may have a boss. I may have a friend. I might have a spouse. I might have a child that is unfairly treating me and saying insulting things or being neglectful to me. But as a follower of Jesus, therefore, I rise above that with strength of Christ and fellow believers that support me. That's what it means to be dedicated. And when you have the discovery period and that's all good kingdom positive talk, it probably doesn't occur to you that I'd be followers of Jesus would have to endure insults and attacks. Well, North Koreans, they get that. For a lot of us, we probably have never been insulted for our faith. But our faith needs to still nevertheless be on display. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. They watched that. I remain faithful even in great loss. And Joseph took the body, and as I said, he wrapped it in clean cloth and laid it in his own tomb, new tomb, never been used before. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Can you imagine watching this man that has healed her of seven demons, contributed all of her funds to help support his ministry, heard him preach great messages, saw him perform great and wonderful and powerful miracles, saw him love the most unloved people of society like lepers and Samaritans, watching all the good that he did, and then watch that dead body of that leader that she had so faithfully followed be carried off to a tomb. And it's over. But notice what Mary does. She follows him to the grave. She didn't turn her back. It's what I call the dedication period, where we go through lousy, rotten, painful experiences, but we don't turn our back on Jesus, even though life is so unfair and unjust. That's the dedication. That's a lot harder than the discovery, where it's all good. Healing, great messages, wow, fantastic. Then the dedication gives way to dependency. Here's the third time that you and I need to be part of this. We, if we're growing, we need to be part of this. And the dependency time, it's a time when I know the living Jesus. I begin to experience a new life more dependent on His power and His presence. That's what she's about to endure and go through in John chapter 20. To grow, I need to hear His voice. I need to hear His voice every day. And that's what Mary experiences. So as I go through the dedication, it says, you know, life stinks. Life is rotten. Life is painful. It is unfair. It is unjust. 
I don't like the way Jesus is being treated. I don't like the way I as his follower are being treated. If this is what it means to follow Jesus, I'm not sure I can hang in there with him. But those who are growing in their faith say, but I remain dedicated. Dedicated to the principles of God's truth. And I will not back down. Because I live in dependency on him. That's what Mary then now discovers. The dependency is found in John chapter 20. And I invite you to have that handy as we go through some of these verses here very quickly. But in John chapter 20, Jesus has been dead in the grave. She runs to the grave. Peter and John run to the grave. They check out the grave. Peter and John run back. They didn't find the body of Jesus. And she goes to the gravesite looking for the body of Jesus. She, along with other women, wanted to go anoint the body with the, the perfume because they didn't embalm bodies the way we do today. And so they would anoint the dead body with perfume. So Mary came to do that. And while she was there, she discovered that there is no body in the grave that she watched personally. She personally saw Joseph put the body there, but the body's not there. And that's a little bothersome when you go to a gravesite and there's no body. Because they put it like a cave. It's like a cave. So you roll the stone away and the stone was already rolled away and there's no body there. And so here's what we see. In that moment, I will move from a human ability alone to a divine power. My mindset begins to change when I see the resurrected Jesus. Notice what the verse says in John 20. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. The angels tell Mary, uh, they ask Mary the question, Why are you weeping? I don't know where the body is. See, Mary didn't fully get it, she still lives on the human level where she expected to find a dead body because it's over, but at least I can continue to anoint his body. I'm faithful to him in living. I might as well be faithful to him in dead. That's the dedicated person, but now it's going to become more dependent. And, and there's this movement from human ability to divine power that she's about to be introduced to. That's the dependency where I recognize I can't do this on my own. I need God. I need Jesus. I want to give an illustration of that. Joy just shared with me this last week. We had some friends and uh, we went to college with, and, and she has some children who are adult age, and they have children who are very young. And they live nearby. So I won't use their names, but they're a dear couple. I did their wedding. So we know them. We love them. They're a great couple. And they've got these little boys. And they have a four-year-old little boy, amongst others, and then they have a little infant that is one year old. Well, the mom, the mom of these kids was taking care of the one-year-old. She had him on a changing table. And so she was changing the diapers. And somehow, as she was doing that, he rolled off the changing table and fell to the ground. And of course, he started crying. I cried every time it happens to me. And so she starts having this uh, period of time where she's trying to figure out what to do because he's crying, he's crying, he's crying. He won't stop crying. And for, I don't know, like an hour, he just keeps on crying. So it was enough for her. She says, I'm taking him to the ER. I better have him checked out. So she loads him up in the car and goes out. And the husband with the other kids says to his kids, let's pray for baby. I'll call him Joe. Let's pray for baby Joe, that God will take care of him. So his mom is taking the one-year-old, to the ER. Dad is praying with the other boys and asking for God to heal and care for their little brother. So they pray. And as mom arrives at the ER, she gets to the parking lot, she begins to unload little baby Joe, and he stops crying. 
And she said, well, he seems to be okay now. I don't know whether I should take him in. And so she calls her husband and says, you know what? He seems okay now. And she's a medical person. He seems okay right now. I'm, I'm not sure whether I really need to take him into the ER right now. And, and husband says, well, that's okay. If you want to just bring him home, that, that would be okay. So she loads him back in the car and begins driving home, comes home, walks in the door. She's got a little baby Joe, and he seems to be fine. Well, big brother, four-year-old big brother, first thing he says when mom comes in, did the doctor fix baby Joe? And mom says, no, no, I never even went into the ER. He just got better. And then big brother, four-year-old big brother, with wise, eyes wide open, said, you mean God did it all by himself? And she says, yes, God did it all by himself and healed your little baby brother. That is where you move from human ability to an understanding of divine power. When you realize that God can do this all by himself. And when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, Mary is beginning to understand. You know, as much as I thought I was helping Jesus out, he didn't need my help. Because if he can raise himself from the dead, he's doing pretty good all by himself. And for you and I, as much as we work hard and thank God you really need us and you must be very thankful for us, I really understand more than I've ever understood in my life that if anything is going to ever happen, it's what God chooses to do. It's not because I'm clever or smarter or better than the next person. That is a ringing endorsement to a ultimate dependency upon Jesus Christ. Because as the story line goes on in John chapter 20, it says, I will, I, my point is I will have an increasing desire to be with this Jesus, even though I won't always recognize His presence and His work. When she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus is there, but she can't see Him. She doesn't identify Him. There are times in life where we are so disappointed and we want to be with Jesus, but it seems like He's absent. Where are you? Read the Psalms. So many times in the psalmist is saying, I can't see Jesus, I can't find Jesus. Where is Jesus? Let me give you an illustration, historical illustration of this. I was reading this last week about Adoniram Judson, who is one of these grateful, uh, great followers of Jesus Christ, who went to what we now was called Burma back then, but we now call it Myanmar. He served in Myanmar or Burma for 38 years. After 38 years, you know how many converts there were in Burma? 25. 38 years, 25 converts. If there was a missions board watching him, they say, you know what, maybe you're not cut out for a missionary work. You're not qualified. But all the while, as he is serving the Lord there, he has translated the New Testament and the Old Testament into the language of the Burma people. But he said this in the process of that, because his wife died while he was there as well, and it was so, so hard for him. Three years after his wife died, he wrote this, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. That's Judson. This desperate strait that I believe God is here, but I can't find him. That was Mary 
As the story goes on, Paul Borthwick, who actually preached here in one of our missions conferences a few years ago on the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Scriptures, as he was there at that ceremonial period of time, he picked up one of the New Testaments, and in it says, translated by Adoniram Judson. So he asked one of the uh, people of Burma there, whose name was Matthew, do you know who this Judson is? And Matthew his translator said, started crying, says, yes, I know who he is. And this is what Matthew told Paul Berthwick, one of our friends. We know him. We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us, out of a love for us. He died a pauper. That's not the discovery time. That's the dedication time. But left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to the one man, the Reverend Adoniram Judson. Judson never saw it, but God did it. You mean God can do it all by himself? Yes. Does he use people like us? Absolutely. Will it cost us sometimes? You bet. But people who are like Mary growing in their faith have this period of total dependency on Him. And as I go through that, I will suffer suffer those disappointments and losses. That's part of the journey. Women, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you have laid Him, and I will take Him away. She has no concept of the resurrected Jesus. She's talking to Him. This is Jesus. She thinks He's the gardener. But there is this period that says, I want to find him, but I can't find him. I want to know him, but I can't know him. There's this period of disappointment and loss that we will go through. It's part of the dependency on Jesus. And I will learn this new dependency and intimacy. When Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have yet not yet ascended to the Father. And then there is this change in dependency. I experience a new personal relationship with Jesus as my Lord and God as my Father. I'm not just being religious now. I'm not going through the motions now. I'm beyond the discovery of all the good. I've gone through the pain of rejection of watching my Savior die. And now Jesus says, I'm going to go to my my brother and say to them, I send to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. You are now a child of the Father, Mary the relationship changes. When you and I live in dependency upon a heavenly Father that I have surrendered to, Romans 6, I have cut my past sins from, I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I put my faith in Him, He is changing me, and now no matter what I go through, He is now my Father. He is my God. That's where the dependency people come from. It's a healthy relationship with God. And I love to tell others about it. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. That's where God wants us to live. To go from discovering good things He does, and yeah, I want to be part of that. Through the dedication of the ups and downs and the highs and the lows of unfairness and rejection and pain and loss and disappointment. To the dependency that says, Lord, You are the risen Savior. And God, you can do it all by yourself. But thank you that you made me your child. I ask and invite you, where are you at? In the discovery time, 
dedication, you're going through some rejection, pain, suffering, because you want to identify with Jesus. Lost because you've got to change. You can't just keep living that way. You should be changes taking place. Or are you in this dependency that says, no matter what, I'm going to trust in the living Jesus. Because Jesus, you're alive. And I want to live in that realm. Trusting you as my Father. Let me pray for us. Pray for our offering as we receive it, closing our service. Father God, I thank you that you're a loving God who sees fit to work in our lives. Lord, the big picture of Mary Magdalene is an amazing portrait of how you would seek for us to live. Because Jesus is such a good God man that we honor and thank you for. But Lord, as we identify with him, there will be periods of life where it's hard. It's hard to give up past sins. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus in the face of rebuke or criticism. But Father, may we come to that garden tomb, see that it is empty, see that Jesus is alive, and even when we don't feel his presence, live as if he is alive, dependent upon his power for what I can never do on my own. We think, I can't change, but Jesus, you change me. Change me to be the person you want me to be. Your follower, dedicated to you. Help us, fathers. We give now. Support your work. Even as Mary gave to support Jesus, help us to support the work you've called us to do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.